sighted on the old Roman road between Ypres and Menin in Flanders, a nondescript road junction became, during the years of 1914-18, the most feared spot on the Western Front. This was Hellfire Corner. We're back in Flanders this week, in the battlefields around the city of Ypres, to visit what was probably one of the most iconic, infamous locations on the Western Front, Hellfire Corner. But before we get there, we're going to start in Ypres itself and follow a not dissimilar journey that the soldiers made themselves during a big proportion of the First World War to get from the city of Ypres up to Hellfire Corner and then beyond that to the front lines or their gun positions. So we're starting this in the main square of Ypres outside the rebuilt Cloth Hall because when we stand in the city of Ypres today we have to remember that everything that we see here, all these magnificent buildings rebuilt in a medieval style are rebuilt. The whole city was completely destroyed in the First World War and even almost halfway through it in 1916 if we look at some of the aerial photographs of Ypres we see that it already it begins to look like the ruins of some lost civilization and a world somehow an ancient world departed. So the original of the cloth hall in front of us was once the centre of the European cloth trade. This was a market hall where cloth was bought and sold and all the little doors that we can see along it were all the individual stalls of the market sellers selling their wares to be then shipped off by the canal systems in this area and barges off to other parts of Europe. So this was a hub of commerce at that time and led to the city of Ypres becoming a wealthy part of Flanders an area which had good drainage, good sewers, fresh water. So if you lived here, you stood a good chance of living for quite a few years compared to other parts of Europe. Eventually, it would have good defences, the big walls, the ramparts that surrounded Ypres. All of this built on the taxation of the trade that took place in buildings like this. And this city and buildings like the Cloth Hall and behind it, St Martin's Cathedral, was described in a, a pre-war British guidebook to Belgium as a medieval gem of Europe. And as the hand of war swept across this, as I say, it was completely destroyed by the end of the war. It was said that you could sit on the back of a horse and have an uninterrupted view from one side of the city to the other. So as we stand here now and see the city of Ypres risen phoenix-like from the ashes, we're seeing a rebuilt world copies of the original buildings that were once here, the whole main square, an exact copy of what it had once looked like before the Great War. But if we take ourselves back to the war for a minute, at a given point, let's say halfway through it, 1916, so we're about halfway through the static period of trench warfare at Ypres from the end of the Second Battle of Ypres in May of 1915 and before the Third Battle of Ypres in July of 1917, when the front line, the so-called Ypres salient, that curvature in the line around the city of Ypres, following the high ground of the ridges, static warfare, classic trench warfare, the day-to-day -day activities of bombardments, of trench raiding, of rifle grenades, of snipers, patrolling, wiring parties, all of that went on for year after year here. So let's take a period like that. What would be happening here in the city of Ypres? Well, in the daylight hours, very, very little indeed. 
because by the end of that Second Battle of Ypres in May of 1915, the Germans were now occupying the bulk of the high ground around the city. Now, when we say high ground, we're looking at ridges that are no more than tens of metres above sea level, but in the flat landscape of Flanders, they afford whoever occupies them an advantage, an advantage in this case on a battlefield to look down upon the enemy and look down upon the city of Ypres. So any movement here during the day could be seen by the Germans from their positions on the ridge or from observation balloons or aircraft in the skies above the battlefields. And the British really learnt some hard lessons here with this, tried to move men up through Ypres during the daytime. There was an occasion in this square where we're standing now when the 9th Battalion of the Duke of Wellington's regiment marched through the square, heading up towards the front line around Hoog, was seen by German observation balloons and immediately heavy shell fire was dropped down into that square and men were killed. So this became a place of movement through the city, but also a place of death. And there are photographs taken during the war. I have an album of an Army Service Corps officer who was here in 1914 and 1915 uh, with some images of this square. And I'll put a couple of them on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. And his photographs show already the buildings become ruinous, but also the cadavers of dead horses that are across the square because... You move in the daylight hours, you're going to be shelled and you're going to lose men, your horses, your transport, whatever you're trying to move through here. So increasingly, Eat became a city that came alive at night and the movement would be in the darkness, the darkest nights possible to move your men up through the city. And soldiers, when billeted in Eat, would go about their business at night, not during the day. And a typical example of what would happen here, an infantry battalion would be detailed to take over the frontline positions just east of Ypres, close to the remains of the hamlet of Hoog on the lower slopes of the Bellawada Ridge. So only a mile or so from the very centre of Ypres, where we're standing now. It would come up from Popperinger, it might have come by train from France, from Hazebrook. It would have detrained somewhere in or near Popperinger, either at Popperinger Station or in one of the sidings close by. And then the men would have marched up the Popperinger Ypres Road. If it was a quiet time and there was enough transport, they might have been lucky to be moved by truck or by Old Bill Bus, the London buses that were used by the Army Service Corps to transport men around. But much more likely, they would march into the city. They would go past the huge, imposing building of the Ypres Asylum on the west side of Ypres, go across what was called Bridge Number 10, come into the outskirts of the city, on the western side of where Ypres Prison was located, which was the headquarters of the town major, the officer commanding the city of Ypres, and then come into the buildings around St Martin's Cathedral and the Cloth Hall where we are now. Now, they would occupy those buildings, but not in the upper floor, so not even the ground floor. This whole area around us, this whole area of the square and the streets beyond, all of these buildings have cellars, some of them quite deep, And during the war, the army occupied those cellars and used them effectively like large dugouts to garrison men when they were in the city, garrison men uh, moving up through it on a temporary basis, and units like the Royal Engineers or later the Labour Corps and then specialist troops that were part of the infrastructure of Ypres, keeping the ability of the army to move through the city. Later on, there were light railways put through here, uh, for example, which all needed maintenance. 
uh, shelled road would need repair, so you'd have Labour Corps units filling in the shell holes and making the road good again. Those men would live for periods within the city and go about their work. So coming back to our imaginary infantry battalion, it's marched up from Popperinger, come into the city at night, and has occupied the cellars in the area around St Martin's Cathedral and where we are now at the Cloth Hall. It's safe underground, there might be shelling going on, although the Germans couldn't see what was happening within the city at night. They just didn't give up on the idea of shelling it, so they would drop random shells of of all sorts of calibres into the city at key areas where they knew there was movement. The Germans would use air photography to analyse the movement of troops, the tracks that men left in and around the city. We did exactly the same in analysing what was going on both on and behind the German lines and they would work out where the key road junctions and key approaches were, and at night they would shell them. So it was never risk-free here. Although you were safe to a certain degree in the cellars underneath the buildings of the city, once you began to move around, and at night, as I say, the city came alive, there was always that random chance of a shell dropping somewhere, and that random chance of death. So having moved up to Ypres in the darkness and occupied the cellars, This infantry battalion would typically spend a day here because once light came, you couldn't then move your men out to where they needed to be. So you'd be in reserve here, awaiting the final orders to take you to the front line and waiting for darkness to come to move up. And coming up out of the cellars in that darkness in the area around the main square where we are, where would they go? Well, the shortest routes to the front line at Hoog, let's say, would be out through the Menin Gates, along the Menin Road, past the position, Hellfire Corner, and then up to the front-line trenches at Hoog. But the Menin Gates was the obvious route to take, and if we knew it was, the Germans knew it as well, and it was very heavily shelled both night and day. So the preferred route was in fact through the Lil Gate, which was not in direct observation by the Germans during the daylight hours, and was not as heavily shelled. So these units would come up out of the cellars, go down the Rue de Lille, the Lille Street, out towards the Lille Gate, and then head off towards the front line. And the Lille Gate was so called because that was the Rue de Lille, the the Lille Street, the road that would eventually lead you to the city of Lille, just across the border in northern France. That's how these gates get their names. So the Lille Gate was on the road to Lille, the Menin Gate was on the road to Menin, and once there'd been a Dixmuda Gate as well, for example, that was on the road, obviously, to Dixmuda. So we're not going through the Menin Gate, we're going to go through the Lille Gate, and to get there we've got to go down the Rue de Lille, the Rysselstraat as it's called now, and just like that battalion during the Great War, we're going to follow that route, leave the main square, head down the road towards the Lille Gate, and that road will be our next stop. So we're walking down the Rysselstraat as it is today, or the Rue de Lille as it was in 1914, the street that takes you down to the Lille Gates. And we're following in the footsteps, really, of the thousands of troops that have come down here during the war. When we look at some of the aerial photographs of the city of Eat, we see that this street was not as badly damaged. And the buildings here are quite tall. So, again, it would, from an observational point of view, have protected the movement of men coming down this route. And increasingly, as you move towards 1917, you do see the movement of men here during some of the daylight hours. So... Perhaps the British felt it was more of a proposition to to do that, particularly following 
the Battle of Messines in June of 1917 when the front lines to the south of Ypres had moved to the other side of the Messines Ridge and perhaps this part of the city was in less direct observation from some of the German lines. Now this imagined battalion that we're following has come from Popperinger, you'll remember, and it might have been lucky enough to spend a, a few days in a camp somewhere around the town there. Soldiers had a lot of time away from the trenches during the First World War, and although when they were away from them, there was plenty that the army gave them to do, fatigues, carrying parties, training, and all sorts of other things, but they did have free time, and in Poppering, they would go into the town and often visit Talbot House. This was uh, a building taken over by two army chaplains, the Reverend PSB Tubby Clayton and the Reverend Neville Talbot, and they named the house in memory of Neville's brother, Gilbert Talbot. We spoke about him in a previous episode of the podcast when we went to Sanctuary Wood, where he's buried. And this was a place that many soldiers went to. It was a, a haven out of hell, as it's been described, a place they could go to to forget about the war, attend concerts in the concert hall at the back. There was a library there. They could watch Charlie Chaplin films. They could go into the hop loft and attend religious services or just sit in a quiet room and write a letter home. So what Tubby Clayton and some of the other chaplains that worked through it decided to do in 1917 was to open a little Talbot house here in Ypres. And as we go down uh, this road on the left-hand side, there's a, a building which I think is now a school that has a plaque on the outside of it marking the fact that this was once Little Talbot House. And I've got a, a wartime illustration of what the building looked like in 1917, which again I'll put on the podcast website. So Little Talbot House opened in November 1917, and there was a chaplain, the Reverend Goodwin, I think it was, that um, was the key chaplain that, that operated here during that time. And it was to provide sort of similar uh, facilities to the bigger Talbot House in Popperinger, but that was within obviously the constraints of Ypres really being much more of a military area than Popperinger was. Uh, the civilians were still living in Popperinger and there was the day-to-day -day activities of that still going on. But here in Ypres, this was essentially part of the front line. And Little Talbot House remained open from November 1917 and it closed uh, around about the time of the German offensive here in April of 1918 of the following year. So it was only open for about four months or so. And the building that occupied this site at the time of the Great War was a, an old lace factory. And again, Little Talbot House was not in the upper levels of that building. It was down in the cellars to protect those who were there. So I think the opening of something like Little Talbot House in a street like this, right off the main square of Ypres, shows really just how important the occupation of Ypres by British troops had become by that period of the war. In November 1917, the front line was now up at uh, Passchendaele, and it was taking troops upwards of 18 hours on some days to get up to that front line because of the terrible battlefield conditions caused by that wet summer of 1917, and more importantly, the huge amount of artillery fire that had devastated the landscape. And it was further back, perhaps a little bit safer uh, during that winter of 1917-18. But nevertheless, it was still a hive of activity. And although men could now walk about safely during the daylight hours, or safe as they could be, there was still long-range shell fire uh, dropping into uh, the city, 
there were railheads here now um, and some what looked like when you look at the trench maps and some of the air photographs almost semi-permanent camps around the ramparts and, and some of the gates so it was a city still very much part of the military infrastructure of the frontline positions here in Flanders. As we continue down the Lille Gate, the road bends and brings us out into a little open area just before the Lille Gate itself. And we can see now the beginnings in this area of the, the walls that once surrounded the ramparts. And these ramparts were a, a type of military defensive technology that uh, went back to the 17th century and were designed by the military architect uh, Vauban. His star-shaped fortifications became widespread across different parts of Europe. There are many here in Flanders and up into the Netherlands and down into northern France. And places like Ypres were able to afford them because of that trade that had taken place over many centuries here, the cloth trade. And the taxation had paid for all the civil projects that had been built within the city and also eventually for these fortifications that protected the city of Ypres and protected its wealth and its citizens. By the time of the Great War, fortifications like this to a degree were redundant and certainly here at Ypres the bulk of the ramparts had been dismantled, particularly on the northern and the western side of the city. And the main section that remained was from near the railway station through here at the Lille Gate and then round to the Menin Gate and just to the north of that as well. They weren't just thick walls that protected the city, they had casemates and chambers and tunnels within them. And so when it came to the time of the Great War, all of these could be implemented. It was said here close to the Lille Gate that General Plumer, for example, had an advanced headquarters during the Battle of Messines in 1917. Now whether that's true or not, many other units had their headquarters here and close to the Lille Gate there were medical facilities. There was a dressing station so wounded coming back from the front line could be treated. And there's a Lille Gate cemetery here which we're going to visit on, a, on another walk fairly soon when we walk from this area around to the, the Menin Gate along the ramparts itself. As we stand here with the Lille Gate in front of us, there's a section of the ramparts just on our left. Uh, when we look at contemporary images of this part of Ypres, there were buildings jutting out from this uh, at the time, probably later constructions built onto the ramparts itself. And we can see a big door, and this is an entrance to part of the, the casemate system within this section of the, of the ramparts. There was a, one of the very early war museums that occupied that site as well, but during the war there was a headquarters there and there was a big bell on a wooden platform here taken from one of the churches nearby, possibly St Jack's, that was used as a gas alarm, massive great big cast bell uh, with an iron rod and they would whack that against the bell to indicate that there was a gas attack going on in the city itself and I'll put a photograph of a Canadian soldier standing by that bell onto the old front line website so you can see it. As we pass under the bridge that forms part of the walkway that connects the two sections of ramparts here at the Lille Gate, it's a, a stone construction now. The contemporary pictures from pre-war uh, show that it was a, a cast iron type structure but as we go underneath it on the left hand side um, are some Imperial Wargraves Commission cemetery signs. These are in the dark green colour that was characteristic of the Imperial War Games Commission with raised lettering painted in white. Now the originals of these, and these are copies, not the actual original signs themselves, they're now kept in a safe place by the Commonwealth War Games Commission. 
this is the type of design of um, cemetery sign that you'd have seen around the battlefields. And when I first used to come across here in the 80s, there were still one or two of these that, that survived. Um, the one for Lone Tree Cemetery down at Spanbrook Molan was there right into the 1990s, for example. And I think there are only two or three examples of the original signs still on anywhere on the battlefields today. Um, so these give us a bit of an indication of that, and they point to the many cemeteries that are in this area. And again, I'll put a picture of what they look like. So we'll walk through the little gate now. Um, ahead of us is a modern roundabout. This was a, a road junction that took us straight ahead down towards the village of Santa Loire. Beyond that, the Messines Ridge. There was a railway line cutting across it, uh, which is no longer there now. That section of the railway line uh, was eventually dismantled, which we'll talk about very shortly. We'll come up to that roundabout, go left, and we'll head along that road, going out further towards Hellfire Corner, and a little bit further up, we'll stop. We've followed the modern road now, and we've crossed over another roundabout the city of Ypres to our left and the ramparts to our left too and this second roundabout that we've crossed over is famous today because of the magic tap that's on it this is a large blue fiberglass tap that seems to be suspended in mid-air somehow and it's not a memorial to the water companies or the royal engineers what it really harks to is what's across to our right from where we are now which is Zillabeek Lake which in medieval times was the water supply the fresh water supply for the city of Ypres and using state-of-the-art infrastructure at that time they were able to pump that fresh water into the city and make it a healthy place for the citizens of Ypres to live. So we've crossed over that now and we're on the next stretch of the of the road heading towards Hellfire Corner and as you take this bit and today it, it's a road that many use just to get round the city without having to go through it and it's easy just to zip along it and really not pay any attention at all but as you walk along it, you see that the ground dips and there's a bit of a hollow here. Now, this was the roots in 1914 of the Ypres Rulers Railway Line that was eventually re-established after the First World War when the devastated region around Ypres was rebuilt. That railway line remained open until, I believe, the 60s or possibly early 70s when it was closed, a bit like our Dr. Beeching railway cuts in the 1960s. And when I first came to Ypres in 1982, it, this area was not a road at all. This ring road had not been constructed. This was a bit of overgrown pathway and was quite an interesting little section to walk. And it took you up onto the next bit beyond Hellfire Corner that then took you up and over the Frasenberg Ridge. And that's a continuation of this road today, the fast road that takes you up to the motorway and beyond to Zonnebeek. So in 1914-18, this was a railway line and a railway line that had been used in the early phase of the war to bring troops up but by May 1915 with the German occupation of the high ground here obviously no trains could run and the railway line was was torn up but in its place was a roadway a railway sleeper planked road with hessian sacking on it to reduce the noise of the movement of vehicles that went along it mainly horse-drawn artillery or supply limbers and there was movement here both day and night, more predominantly at night, for exactly the same reasons as the movement of troops in and around Ypres. It was, took place at night as well, so you had the darkness to screen your movement without being directly observed in the air by aircraft or balloons from the other side of the battlefield. 
And this inconsequential little bit of hollow ground that we're walking through now was really important because it gave an approach point to Hellfire Corner, which is, what, a quarter of a mile or so ahead of us. And it meant that the traffic going through that junction could be regulated and men could be held back here Wagons could be held back, artillery units could be held back, troops marching up could be held back in this hollow relatively safely before they were then given orders that it was as safe as possible to proceed across Hellfire Corner. This route was lit not by large ornate street lamps. What they would use is old petrol tins and they would cut a section out the back and make a sort of like a door really so where they could put a candle um, or an oil lamp inside, close that up, and then facing the direction of where the traffic would be coming from, either limbers or, or men, they would bash out the shape of an arrow using dots so that at night, with the lamp or the candle inside, the troops would be able to see the shape of an arrow showing the direction they were meant to be moving and showing the limitations of the road, not to veer off to the right or to the left so lining this route at that time would have been these little petrol tins with the lamps inside giving enough of a glow to indicate the arrows but not attracting the attention of the enemy and this faint glow of yellowish arrows would have shown your approach to hellfire corner now when units got here whether they were infantry moving up or whether they were artillery or supply they didn't just go across when they chose, there were military foot police based here permanently who were essentially directing the traffic because an infantry battalion crossing over Hellfire Corner, because of the number of men, hundreds of men involved, would take a lot longer. So you wouldn't just let them stroll across because they could bunch up, there could be a lot of men there at one time, and if a bombardment suddenly hit the road junction there could be heavy casualties all of which I suspect had once happened here, which gave rise to this learning curve of knowing how to, to deal with this situation. So the military foot police would regulate it. They would allow a certain number of limbers, certain number of guns to move across at a rapid rate. Some of the veterans that I interviewed that served here with the artillery in, in 1917 in the approach to the Third Battle of Ypres said you really gallops for your life across Hellfire Corner. You did not stop to look. You did not stop to take notes. You just kept going until you got to where you were meant to be. And the infantry would be sent over in small detachments. I suspect probably at some times almost platoon by platoon rather than company by company. So you limited the number of men that were on this focus of German shelling to limit the number of casualties that potentially could occur if and probably more likely when those shells would drop. A little bit further up on the left-hand side, as the, we move away from the hollow and climb up the rising ground towards Hellfire Corner itself, on the left there is a, a British concrete bunker, and it's one of several of this design that you can find in this part of the battlefield, I suspect almost certainly built by the same field company of the Royal Engineers. It, it's a curved bunker, and there's indentations in the side of it when the concrete was still wet, they had pressed sandbags to give some extra protection to it over the top of the bunker, also to help disguise what it was, I suspect, um, by adding in foliage and, and various other things, an attempt to almost camouflage it. All of that's long since rotted away, and the indentations that were made in the cement when the sandbags were placed there are still visible. 
For a long time, this when this was, wasn't a road here, this was not accessible whatsoever. And to the credit of the City of Eat, when this new bypass road was put in, they cleared back this bit of ground so you could see the bunker. The diggers, who we spoke about in one of the early podcasts, they were a group of amateur archaeologists that operated in and around Eat, particularly at Bozinger. They came up and did a bit of an excavation here, and I think at least one British soldier was found buried near to the bunker and was eventually reburied. And when you read some of the wartime accounts of Hellfire Corner, you do read about isolated graves by the side of the trackway here and close to the junction, the, the, the corner itself, because some men were not so lucky in their crossing of this ground. And for the military foot police who were here, obviously this was a dangerous job because they were permanently based at this position and were under fire at all times. So this bunker was most likely built for them or built for units that were here subsequently because once the line moved on towards the end of the third battle of Eat during that winter of 1917-18, the railway line here was rebuilt, the trackway was torn up, a railway line was put in place and there were sidings here so that troops could be brought by train again from Popperinga to Ypres and then detrained here and marched up to the front line via the, the new trackways that took you up to the ground around Passchendaele. And there were sidings in the area where we're standing here now so that railway guns, heavy artillery, could pull in there and then fire up onto the German positions beyond Passchendaele itself. So it changed again in that latter period of the war. And it could be that the bunker later on was used as the headquarters, particularly of some of these railway guns, would be the ideal sort of bunker that you'd have your communication system in, linking you to your observers somewhere up on the battlefield, and that information being brought back to uh, a safe position, a bunker like this, and then relayed to the guns that were in the sidings. But originally, its original intent, I suspect, was all part of the traffic control system that was here in the approach to Hellfire Corner. So from the bunker, we'll continue along here, up towards the big roundabout now that forms what is the modern Hellfire Corner, and that'll be our next stop. It's difficult to say when the name Hellfire Corner was first used. This was an approach route to the forward areas of the battlefield in the first Battle of Ypres in 1914, a more mobile battle than some of the other ones in the following years of the Great War, and certainly it would have been shelled, but there are photographs taken here during that first Battle of Ypres that show armoured cars moving up and uh, limbers of artillery units and cavalry, and it doesn't look as if the men are that concerned about shell fire. I suspect that really it got its hellish reputation once the lines were formed, the static lines were formed around Ypres following the end of that second battle in 1915 when the front lines were just above Hellfire Corner at Hoog, over to the right, Hill 62 and Observatory Ridge, and over to the left, the rising ground of the Bellawada Ridge and the Frasenberg Ridge and eventually the Pilkelm Ridge. So surrounded by this high ground, it was as if all eyes looked down upon this road junction. And what it was here, the, the junction itself, very different to the modern roundabout that we see today, it was the crossing of the railway line, the Eat Rulers railway line, from where we've just walked, the as it came round the southern part of the city of Ypres, across this road and then up at an angle towards the village of Zonabeek and then beyond that to its eventual destination. And then there were a number of roads coming in here. So it was an important juncture of roads and routes, just as it is 
over a century later today. Uh, the railway's gone, but the roads are still here, and probably just about everybody that comes to Eep steps along this part of the old front line will travel through this at some point. And its importance as you travel around and you find yourself coming back to here soon becomes apparent today, just as it was apparent and important uh, during the time of the Great War. But I think that name, Hellfire Corner, probably one of the most iconic names that came out of the First World War. And we see it used again and again over the years since. In the Second World War in 1940, uh, Dover, down on the Kent coast, found itself very much on the front line of Britain following the collapse of France. It was shelled by long-range guns uh, close to Calais and, and Boulogne. It was bombed. Sections of the Battle of Britain took place in the skies above Dover, and it became known then as Hellfire Corner. And I think it's one of those names, and almost a phrase really, that is very much part of the, the verbal currency of the Great War, and a phrase that I think that if you said to anybody in the streets, any member of the public, they probably would pretty much connect it straight away to the Great War. And for the veterans, it was a feared, fearful, but well-remembered part of the battlefield, because just about every soldier that came to Ypres between 1914 and 1918 would have passed through here at some point, some on a very regular basis. The veterans, as I mentioned, who were in artillery units that were here uh, during the static period or in the lead up to the Third Battle of Ypres, this was an area that they went through almost every day, one way and another, moving from their gun positions to the ammunition stockpiles and, and backwards and forwards. And once the importance of this road junction was realised within the infrastructure behind the British front line around Ypres, I think that's when it really took on its greater reputation because that's when it was regulated by the military foot police and all the approach roads were put in uh, and the, the lighting of the routes and the erection of Hessian screens to screen off the movement of the traffic here along this section of the Menin Road, both in the approach from Ypres and beyond Hellfire Corner as well. Although one of the veterans that I interviewed said that uh, these Hessian screens that were up on wooden poles and, and painted in a sort of a camouflage paint didn't last very long because the donkeys liked to eat them. And if you lingered, which you wouldn't do that, that often at uh, Hellfire Corner, the donkeys would work their way through the Hessian screen uh, and the thing would gradually collapse and obviously be damaged as well by shell fire and shrapnel um, and they'd be flapping around in the wind like tattered old battle standards. And also the marking of it with signs. There are a number of signs with Hellfire Corner on them, uh, most notably in the collection of the Imperial War Museum. When you go to the First World War galleries, you'll see at least one of them uh, on display there. So this became an iconic spot, really, for the men who were here, a place that they always identified with the battles of Ypres. And it was almost worn, I suspect, as a badge of honour to say that you'd passed through, you'd been at Hellfire Corner at some point during your service. So we've followed the route of the, the mythical infantry battalion from Popperinger into Ypres, out through the Lille Gate and along the approach road to here. And while each soldier knew as he was moving up, he was getting nearer and nearer to the front line, when they got to Hellfire Corner and the immediacy of having to move across this as quickly as possible, they knew that the real war, the shooting war, the place where death stalks was now just ahead of them. And beyond this were the communication trenches. So infantry units like that would have come up along that approach road, 
made their dash across Hellfire Corner in the darkness and then got into the communication trenches around them. And across to our right from where we are, near to the village of Zillabeek, was one of the longest communication trenches in the Ypres salience. This was China Wall, the Great Wall of China. This large breastwork-like trench with the sandbags up above ground level that took men from positions like this through the safety of a communication trench up towards the system of British frontline positions in places like Santry Wood, along Observatory Ridge or near to the hamlet of Hoog. But as difficult as it is standing here on the modern roundabouts and the modern world passing around us, we have to stop and think in our mind's eye for a moment of what this once was like. Picture a dark night with limbers going hell for leather across this ground in the distance, the rumble of artillery fire and flares on the horizon lighting the dark landscape. The men, their eyes white with fear as they come through this position, heading towards their eventual destination. Shells might be dropping around as you moved up. If you were unlucky, there might have been a gas attack and gas was drifting through the air here, which meant you had a gas mask or a respirator on, making your journey through here even more uncomfortable. And so when you think of it like that, you can imagine why the impression that this place made on people, why it stayed with them forever, why they never forgot Hellfire Corner. But it wasn't always just a route to the front line. In April 1918, the Germans attacked in the second of their offensives on the Western Front, what we called the Battle of the Lease, when the Germans broke through the British lines on a wide front from Flanders, from Passchendaele in the north, across the border into France, around the town of Armentiers, and broke through that so-called Forgotten Front that ran from Armentiers down towards the La Basse Canal. Because it covered both France and Flanders, this isn't really part of one of the four battles of Ypres in terms of the Battle Nomenclature Committee and their decision to name these battles, uh, the names by which we know them today and, and that appear in the official history and divisional histories and regimental histories besides. But this period in April 1918 saw a breakthrough, saw all that ground that had been captured at such high cost in the third Battle of Ypres in the push towards the Passchendaele Ridge. It saw it lost in just a few days and Hellfire Corner became a front line. When you look at the trench maps of that period, the front line was just west of Hellfire Corner. And this put the Germans the nearest to Ypres that they'd been since the very beginning of the conflict here in Flanders, when just in the preliminaries to the first Battle of Ypres in October 1914, German troops had entered Ypres for a very short while. Now they were less than a mile from the centre from the cloth hall for what remained of the cloth hall at that time. And what that meant was in that final phase of the war, aside from the fighting here, the city of Eat was now under fire from field artillery as well as the heavier guns. So gradually what was left of the rubble, like I say, something that looked like the ruins of an ancient civilization, was almost turned to dust in those final months of the war. But the Germans never broke through at this point and Pause for a minute to think about why. Well, we mentioned earlier that come the winter of 1917-18, when following the Third Battle of Ypres, the front line was now around Passchendaele, which is about eight and a bit miles from where we're standing here at Hellfire Corner. It was taking British units about 18 and a half hours to cross that smashed ground from the outskirts of Ypres, where we are now, up towards the forward positions. 
Effectively, our lines of communication were cut by the conditions on the battlefield, all that shelling, that moonscape that had been created by the bombardments in 1917 had restricted our ability to move up men, to move up materials, supplies, ammunition, and evacuate the wounded. Imagine being a soldier in the front line at Passchendaele and knowing that it might take 18 hours for you to be carried on a stretcher back towards Ypres. And all of that made our holding our occupation of that new front line beyond Passchendaele very difficult in many respects. So when the Germans broke through here in April 1918, they captured that ground, they captured that wasteland. So just as it taken us all those hours to move up, once the Germans pushed through and reached here at Hellfire Corner, and this became their front line, they had the landscape, the moonscape, that wasteland of destruction behind them. So they too suffered the same problems. Their lines of communication were effectively cut by this. And for us, the situation was now changed. Our lines of communication was the ground between Popperinger and Ypres, where there were good roads, damaged by shell fire, but not destroyed in the bombardments of the previous battles. And it meant that we could move up men, material, supplies, and more importantly, guns, to protect the area beyond Ypres. Ypres was this symbolic points. It was probably of little strategic value. But by 1918, so many had fallen in defence of Ypres, as the phrase was at that time, that it could not fall to the invader, not fall to the enemy. And perhaps it's even more symbolic that the Germans were stopped here at Hellfire Corner, this point, this infamous point which so many had known during the preceding years of the war. So in 1918, the front line at Hellfire Corner remained static from the German breakthrough in April until the late summer of 1918 when the fourth and final Battle of Ypres took place here in September and October and gradually the Germans were pushed back, the ground beyond the Hellfire Corner was taken, the advance began down the Menin Road and by October the town of Menin which would remain behind the German lines for those four years of the war was in Allied hands. A few weeks later British and Canadian troops reached Mons and the war was over. And so in 1919, Hellfire Corner stood as a beacon on the landscape here in many respects, with its shattered signs peppered by shrapnel, its torn-up railway lines, the old railway sleeper roads cut and ripped by shell fire, now gradually being repaired once more, not to allow the movement of military traffic, but gradually civil traffic, civilian life, as it returned to this region. The old junction was eventually restored here, with roads coming in from different angles and the railway line heading up to rulers returned here once more. But today there's little sense of that. When I first came to Ypres in 1982, very little had changed of this junction since the rebuilding of this ground in the 1920s. We came here to see the demarcation stone, of which more in a moment, but there were buildings on both sides of the road. There was the remains of the old railway crossing because by then the railway line had been removed. But it still felt like a proper junction, like a corner, because there were buildings on a corner and you had to stop on a corner to get out and to look at the demarcation stone. But in the 1990s, the road was widened, the junction was remade and all the buildings here were demolished and the roundabout that we know today was created and the demarcation stone was moved to the western side of the roundabout, slightly nearer to Ypres. And what I'll put on the old Frontline website are some photographs from my early trips to Ypres showing what Hellfire Corner looked like then 
and some aerial photographs taken by the founder of the Western Front Association, John Giles, when he flew over the Eat battlefields in 1983. And that'll give you some idea of how this part of the landscape on the Western Front has changed so dramatically over those decades. But what does remain here is the demarcation stone that I spoke about earlier. And this is uh, a memorial that you'll find in quite a few locations, not just here in Flanders, but along the entire length of the Western Fronts. These were designed by Paul Moreau Vautier, often called in French sources Vautier stones. And the demarcation line that they commemorate is the furthest advance of the German army in 1918 because each of the stones proclaims here the invader was brought to a standstill. Designed by Vautier in 1920, about 240 of these stones were planned to literally mark the line of the Western Fronts, all 450 miles of it at different points, but about half that number were eventually placed. Quite a lot of them were lost in the Second World War. I think 20 or disappeared through the combat in different areas of the old battlefields of the Great War, particularly in eastern France, where there was heavy fighting in both 1940 and 1944. The most northern stone is almost on the beach at Newport, where the Western Front began, and the furthest south is in the Vosges, close to the Hartmanns Villakopf, where the Western Front ended near the Swiss border, although there's not one on the very final end of the Western Front itself at that point. They were paid for by cycle touring clubs, one here in Belgium, one in France. Some of the ones around Ypres were also paid for by the Ypres League, which was a a First World War Remembrance Association that was started by veterans in the interwar period and published the fascinating Eep Times magazine, which is about to be reprinted. And this one here at Hellfire Corner has the shape of a, a British steel helmet on the top. There are others for Belgian helmets, and the majority of them have got the shape of a French helmet on, marking the sectors of the French parts of the Western Front where the fighting took place. When the one here at Hellfire Corner was first put in place, it stood in a totally barren landscape. None of the buildings had yet been reconstructed, and beyond was the smashed ground of the old salient, and after four years of fighting, nothing, of course, remained. Henry Williamson, the soldier author, came here at that time and said it was a strange place to be, to go out onto the old battlefields, to see them devoid of life, during the daytime, the Belgian civilians would be there trying to recover their, their farms and their houses and their land. And at night, there was nowhere for them to live in the old villages and the farms. So they would return to Ypres, to the barrack hut accommodation that had been supplied for them. And the battlefields would be dark and silent. And often when I come to Ypres on a battlefield tour, we've just attended the last post ceremony at the Menin Gate. And we're pulling away to head back to our hotel, back to Billets back for a beer and a few thoughts of the day that we've had on the ground. And as we pull away from Ypres, I always bring the coach through Hellfire Corner and talk about what it was like here to race through this ground at night and then get the group to look beyond to the darkness on the ridge, on the Bellawada Ridge, on the Frasenberg Ridge, along the Menin Road, where for four years the guns flashed and the night sky was cut by flares. Just like Williamson's time in the post-war world, today these battlefields are silent. Or are they? We stand here in the modern world, with the hustle and bustle of Hellfire Corner behind us, a different type of traffic today. 
and we look too beyond to the ridge and somehow that ground doesn't seem quite so silent and this i guess is the power of the old front line You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. <laughs>